Hi, I'm Sean Moss. I'm going to read the scripture to you this morning. So if you'd all please stand for the reading of scripture. We're going to be on page 987. We're reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. The reason we're standing and the reason I'm also going to ask you after I'm finished reading to say thanks be to God is because we are thankful for this book. Our Lord Jesus even says this, this scripture, all of it is about him. And we're big fans of him around here. And he's done some good stuff. And as we'll read, uh, it's because of him. It's because of the loving father's plan to send his son to unite us with him. Not only us, but people who have died in the past in Christ. So we are thankful for that. And we stand in honor because of that. Right? Yeah? Okay. All right. So page 987 on the black Bibles around the room. Also, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of these Bibles home. First Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the reading of God. <laughs> Father, I pray that you would uh, please send your spirit to all of the saints this morning. Um, and to Kyle this morning, I pray that he could preach clearly and with clarity and that you would do um, a mighty work in all of us to build us up, to allow us to hear your word and to show us your love and to show us yourself glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, Sean. Okay, so as I said, I've been out for three months, and I am so excited to preach again. So hopefully this will be less than two hours. <laughs> it won't be two hours. Um, but uh, I do want to say that we are so blessed to be back at Living Stones. Uh, during the three months, uh, each week we went to different churches around town, and each week we had to go through this battle with my kids, because they would always say, we want to go to our church. And I'm like, Jesus is in other churches too. And they're like, but we like ours. He's there better, you know. And <laughs> I'm like, no. And so it was a good teaching moment for us as a family. But there is a truth to the fact that no place feels like home except for home. And, um, and that's kind of cool about how God has all these different local congregations in which he's working 
and uh, the gospel's being preached, and Jesus is present there, but for different people, he's called them to different congregations, and that's their home. That's their family, in a sense. And so for these last three months, we've been rested, we've been rejuvenated, but we've missed our family. And so it's good to be back with you as a family. And I'm very excited to preach to you this passage from 1 Thessalonians 4. And so if you don't have it open, make sure you grab one of the Bibles and it open it up there. It's on page 987. And um, I really want you to be looking at these words because we need to be thinking about these words. And this passage is a passage that's about the return of Jesus Christ. It's about the return of Jesus Christ. And I've been chuckling for over a week as I've been thinking about preaching this because it reminds me of a memory that I have as a child. Whenever my mom would go out of town, my dad would always be like, this night's going to be great. And he would cook us chili dogs, and then he would rent a movie, an action film that my mom wouldn't want us watching. And so I remember uh, my mom went out of town, and he rented Terminator 2. And we had chili dogs and watched Terminator 2. And it was amazing. And um, I really don't remember anything about it except for I do remember this line that was a repeat of a line from Terminator 1. And it was this line that the Terminator says, he says, I'll be back. And at school the next week, apparently everybody else's moms went out of town because we all were quoting this line to each other. After recess, after a game, we'd look at each other and say, I'll be back. We'd go home on the weekends and we'd get off the bus. We'd look at each other. We'd say to the bus driver, I'll be back. And it was just this idea that like, I'm coming back. And it can, and it can be, you know, in some senses that phrase can, was meant to, by the Terminator to invoke fear. In some senses it was meant to invoke comfort. Um, and in both senses it's meant to invoke anticipation. And the truth of the gospel is that Jesus came and he came to us, amen? He got off his throne. He became human. He came to us. Then he died on the cross for us. Then he resurrected to defeat death and he ascended back up into heaven. And what's he say to us, church? I'll be back. (laughs) And I wonder if he said it in a German accent. The disciples were confused. He's like, you'll get this later in about 2,000 years. And so that's what this passage is about. It's about the return of Jesus. And so my main point is simple. He'll be back. He'll be back. And so Paul says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is a a Christian way of saying they've passed away from this life. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The first thing I want us to recognize the first point is this, is that he'll be back is an important doctrine that we need to think about. Paul says in verse 13, I do not want you to be what? Uninformed. It's information. There's a teaching here that's happening. He says, I want you to have this knowledge. And so the context of what's happening is the Thessalonian church is a really, it's a baby church. It's a brand new church. And it's a church that's living um, in a very secular world. And so they're trying to follow God in a world that has a lot of resistance to God and his ways. Does that sound familiar? 
and they don't know how to do that. And so Paul's writing this letter. This is the first letter of the New Testament. And he's writing this letter to them saying, this is just the basics of Christianity. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the return of Jesus Christ. I want you to have knowledge of it. You have to think about it. It's important doctrine for you to think about. And the reason why is what was going on is Paul's time with them was cut short. The book of Acts tells us that Paul was there preaching the gospel to them in Acts 17. And he was probably expounding to them all the prophecies about Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection. And he probably told them about the return. But then all of a sudden, persecution hit that church. And there was a guy named Jason who was hosting Paul as he was teaching the gospel. And then a mob, an angry mob who hated Jesus came and beat down Jason. And so in the middle of the night, the Thessalonian believers took Paul and sent him away so that he wouldn't be persecuted to death. And so Paul, um, his time was cut short. So it's likely that he had told them about the return of Jesus, but hadn't had time to expound to them the depths of the return of Jesus. And so in the meantime, they're thinking Jesus is going to come back in their life. And then Sam died last week and Joanne died two weeks ago. And they're asking the question, well, what about them? Are they going to miss out on the return and resurrection of Jesus? And so they had grief in their heart. And perhaps even this was happening. When people die, grief overtakes your heart. And sometimes the grief is greater than knowledge. Sometimes the grief is so heavy that you aren't thinking straight. Most of us have been there. And so Paul says, I want you to think about this. He says, this is an important doctrine for you to think about. And what that shows us is this. Christianity is not all about feeling good. It's about truth. Christianity is not about all the feels. It's about right doctrine. Paul knows that comfort from the heart comes from renewal of the mind. And it's important that our minds are renewed with the truth because your feelings are valid, but your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will lie to you. And so the way that we combat those lies or we filter our feelings is through the truth of the gospel. And Paul says this is an important doctrine that you need to think about. Jesus is coming back. Here's how it's said in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus has resurrected, he gathered his disciples together. And this is what it says, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Doesn't, don't you just like that about Jesus? They're like, is, is now the time when you're going to renew everything? And Jesus is like, it ain't for you to know. <laughs> you're on a need-to-know basis. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus is saying, it's not time for me to renew all things because there's more people out there who don't know about me. And I'm sending you as the church to go tell them to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, just like a hot air balloon. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. 
and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? As we all would have been gazing at heaven, like, this is crazy. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so the angels say, what are you guys doing standing around? This Jesus who you saw go up, he's going to come back. So get to work. He gave you a mission. Go tell the world about his goodness and his grace. Get to work. But the good news is he's coming back. As you saw him go, he will return. This is the hope of Christianity. We live in between the age of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. At his first coming, Jesus came mostly in meekness and humility. He came to be our sacrifice. But in the second coming, he's going to come in power and glory to be our king and the judge of the earth. In his first coming, Jesus came to deal with the penalty of sin through his death and the power of sin through his resurrection. But in the second coming, he's going to come to deal with the presence of sin altogether. This is a doctrine we need to think about. We need to have a well-rounded gospel diet. The gospel is the prophecies about Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the words of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit of Christ empowering his church, but it's also the return of Christ. And that is something that we need to have regularly, be, we need to regularly be thinking about in our gospel diet. It's not good for you just to eat protein. Some of you young 20-year-olds, you hear that? At the gym, don't eat just protein. You also need vegetables and, and carbs. It's not good just to eat uh, carbs. It's not good just to eat fat. And it's not good just to focus on one aspect of the gospel. And, and churches tend to gravitate towards one aspect of the gospel, right? Sometimes you have churches that focus on the life of Jesus. And you go to them and it's always about how you can live a life like Jesus lived his life. Other churches focus on the death of Jesus. And their churches are very depressed all the time. All the songs are sad, and it's just very, we're sinners all the time. It's like, turn the page to the resurrection. And then some churches are resurrection churches, and it's always happy, happy, glory, glory, everything's great. Some churches are Holy Spirit churches, the Spirit of Christ in the church, and that's all they talk about is the Spirit and the gifts and all this stuff. But we need to have a well-rounded gospel diet. Some churches are only focusing on the return of Jesus. They're like planning it out. They got charts every week is about Daniel and Revelation, how they're correlating and all this stuff. And Paul is saying, look, you can go crazy with trying to figure out all the details, but you need to be thinking about this doctrine. And, And as I've been reflecting on this for me personally, there's two reasons why I Um, tend to not think about the doctrine of the return. The first reason is because there's some wackadoodle teachers out there. And they think they got, they're like planning it out. It's all they talk about. When I talk to them, I feel more confused about Christianity, not more clear about Christianity. And I don't want to be those people. The second uh, reason why I sometimes don't like thinking about the return of Christ is honestly because the details about his return are clear, but at the same time, not very specific. Um, We don't know when it's going to happen. We know a little bit of kind of what it's going to be like. We just, but what it's, what's clear is that he's coming back victoriously and will gather his people, but the rest is really vague. And I found that sometimes because it's vague, it's confusing, it's mystery, mysterious, it's kind of easier to just be like, well, I guess it's not that important. I don't want to think about it. But I like what Larry Osborne says. 
for, he's a pastor in San Diego. He says, our church's stance on the return of Christ is that we're going to be on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. And I think that's pretty good. Uh, we need to be on the welcoming committee of Christ. And therefore, we need to be thinking about it, but we don't need to worry about all the details. And isn't it interesting that God gives us just enough to know that it's going to happen, but then he withholds enough information so that we would have to live by faith. Because the whole Christian life is about faith. It's about faith. So we need to think about it. Why should we think about this? There's, my next two points are about why. Um, the first reason why is this. He'll be back to resurrect all who believe in him. He'll be back to resurrect all who believe in him. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice from an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And all God's people said, there is a resurrection that is coming. Part of the return of Christ is that he will resurrect all those who are in Christ before he renews this world. And um, I just want you to think about that. Like if Jesus came back today, it would be glorious. We'd just all be caught up to be resurrected to him in new and glorified bodies. And all those who have died throughout the ages in all regions of the earth and all uh, races of the earth and all ethnicities will be raised up if they are in Christ to be with him as he comes to return. It will be this great and glorious day. Martin Luther, Martin Luther called it the most happy day. Christianity is about newness of life. It's not about behavior modification. And that is clear we see here in this text. The hope of Christianity is about being made new. It's not about being made better. Is that clear? A lot of times we like to think that Christianity is one of those world religions that is where Jesus can kind of be your life coach and then you can become a better person. And at the end of the day, God will let in good people into heaven and then the bad people he won't let into heaven. But that's not how it works because there are no good people naturally. Christianity is about being made new. It starts with getting a new heart. And then that new heart gives you new affections, and that new affections cause you to worship a new Lord, and that new Lord will give you a new way, and then that new way, eventually, as you follow Jesus, will lead to a new resurrected life with a new glorified body. This is what Jesus uh, says in uh, Revelation 21. This is the very end of the Bible. This is where all things are headed. It says this, 
Then I saw, this is the Apostle John, he's, he's seeing this vision of what heaven will be. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Christianity is about being made new. And it will find its final and fullest completement. I don't, that's not a word. It's going to find its final fulfillment when Jesus returns. And all who are in him are resurrected to new life. Won't that be great? No tears, no sickness, no death. Can you imagine that? I mean, some of us are getting old. You ready, Willie? No more back pain. No more cancer. No more evil in this world. No more oppression. No more mental illness. And no more sin. I was talking with my dad recently. He's like, you know, it's not the evil out there that bothers me and scares me. It's the evil in here that scares me. But there will be a day where the evil in here will be gone. Because you will be renewed. If you work at the hospital, you're going to have to get a new job in the new heavens and new earth. And guess what? I'm going to have to get a new job too. Because I won't have to preach about Jesus. I'll just say, there he is. Go talk to him. You know? This is the great and glorious day. It's about being made new. If you are in Christ, this is the hope that we have. And you might be asking the question, especially if you're not a believer here. We're really glad that you're here. Maybe you're investigating Christianity. Maybe you have some questions. You might be saying, how come you keep on saying in Christ? That sounds very exclusive. What about the rest of us? Well, I think the answer is simple. It's simply this, that the new heavens and the new earth is a place of righteousness and holiness. And none of us are righteous and holy on our own. And Jesus is the only one who came to make us righteous. He's the only one who had the bank account deep enough to pay for our unrighteousness. And he's the only one who could live on our behalf and accomplish all of God's law. And so, therefore, our only hope is in Jesus. I'm not saying this because we think we're better. I'm saying this because I think I'm worse, but I know that Jesus is better. Jesus is our only hope, really. And, and heaven, if you see, it's a place where he dwells. It's a place where, where he is. And so therefore, it's a place for people who love him. And that's why this resurrection is for those who are in Christ. But the good news of this is it's for all who believe. One of the things that struck me as I was meditating on this on Friday is Paul keeps on using the word we. If you look at verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. He says we. Um, this is really interesting to me because the apostle Paul is like, he's insanely intelligent. He, uh, he was trained in the best Bible schools. He uh, spoke multiple different languages. Uh, the Apostle Paul is also 
of the Jewish uh, uh, ethnicity, of the Jewish people. So he had been partaking in the promises of God. The Apostle Paul is also um, somebody who was uh, willing to lay his life down for the sake of the gospel. If there was a superhero Christian, it would be the Apostle Paul. But Paul shows no elitism here. He doesn't start flexing the fact that he's a Jew, not a Gentile. He doesn't start flexing the fact that he knows a bunch about the Bible and they don't. He doesn't start flexing his devotion over them because he knows that in Christ there is no elitism. That in Christ, at the cross, we're all on level ground, equally condemnable as sinners, but equally loved in Jesus Christ. So therefore... It is, this resurrection is not dependent upon the color of your skin or the language that you speak. It's not dependent on how much money you make. It's not dependent on if you're smart or if you're dumb. It's not dependent if you're liked and popular or if you're unpopular. It's not dependent upon whether or not you know the Bible or you don't know the Bible. It's not dependent upon whether or not you've been a good Christian lately or you've been backsliding lately. It's not dependent upon your works or your person in any way, shape, or form. It's dependent on one thing and one thing alone, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ, that's it. That's the only thing that qualifies us for this resurrection. And it's, and it's accessible to all. So if you are here today, and I urge you to have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you feel beat up and you feel wounded and you feel broken, just take heart that you have faith in Jesus Christ. And may I say one more thing, that it's not the measure of your faith in Jesus Christ. Because if that was the case, we would all be screwed. Because some days we have a lot of faith and then other days we're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore. It's not the measure of your faith in Jesus Christ, it's the object of your faith. Jesus says, if you have a mustard seed of faith in me, you will see mountains move. It is in him. That's it. And that so, should be so encouraging to us. And this, is, this, this idea, if you believe in him, there will be a resurrection. And, and Paul is speaking to this grieving church because they're asking the question, well, what about those people who have died in the faith? Are they going to miss out? And Paul says, no, they're not going to miss out. In fact, it says right here, uh, I think it's verse 14. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So where are those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus? They're with him right now. They're with him. The Apostle Paul says in Second. Corinthians, that if you believe in Jesus, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this should give comfort, and Paul is trying to speak comfort to these hurting Christians who maybe have had some loved ones die. And he's saying, guess what? They're with him right now. And that's why he calls death falling asleep. Because when you fall asleep, you're alive, you close your eyes, and you wake up alive. You go from life to life. And for the Christian, when you pass away, you go from life with Jesus to life with Jesus. And then when he returns, even better life with Jesus. Physical life with Jesus, bodily life with Jesus. It's life to life. And so this is the hope that we have, the hope of the resurrection, that all who believe in him will be resurrected. And so the, the courage for us as a church is that we need to be encouraging one another. As it says in verse 18, encourage one another with these words. And he says, I don't want you to grieve as those who do not have hope. 
So in other words, death hurts. It's scary. It's painful. But it doesn't have the final word. We have hope that Christ has the final word, that we will be with him. And for those who die in Christ, it's not goodbye forever. It's I'll see you later. As uh, one deacon at the Elko Living Stones used to say to me, he actually died, I think, last year. His name was Foz. He used to say, I'll see you here, there, or in the air. <laughs> and now I'm going to see him in the air. And so will you. This is the hope we have. And you know, as a church, we haven't experienced a lot of death in this church yet. We've experienced some, but not a lot. And as we age, it's going to happen more. I've done a funeral for a few high school students, but I haven't done any for any children, but it will happen. And our job in those moments is to gather together, to put our arms around each other, and to say, this sucks, but we have hope. As sure it is, as the Lord has spoken, he says, I say to you this on the word of the Lord, as sure it is as the word the Lord has spoken, as sure as it is historically accurate that Jesus came and died and resurrected, we have hope that he will return. Our hope is rooted in the past, but it gives us confidence for the future. We have hope. There will be a resurrection. So then the next reason why we need to think about this doctrine is because this doctrine is a doctrine of what he's going to do. And, and, and this one is a little bit longer. He'll be back as a high priest and king to gather his bride for final victory and deliverance from evil. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but I'm really excited about this point, so I hope you are too. Verse 17 uh, 16 says this, 16 and 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, packed into these two verses are three primary Old Testament images that of a high priest, that of a groom, and that of a victorious king. So first, the high priest. In the Old Testament, there was a guy of the tribe of Levi who was the high priest chosen by God. And what the priest's job were, were to represent God to the people and people to God. And the high priest had this special responsibility that once a year, he would make sacrifices for his own sins on the Day of Atonement. He would make sacrifices for his own sins. But then he would make sacrifice for the people's sins. And then he would put on this vestment, this vestment that had 12 stones representing all the tribes of Israel. And then he would go into this place called the Holy of Holies. He would go to where God's presence was. And it was such a scary thing that they would tie a rope around him that if he died in the presence of the Lord, they could drag him out. And he would go there and he would sit on, uh, on this seat. It was called the mercy seat. It was like a throne. Under the throne was the Ten Commandments. And he would sit on top of the law as one who, know, who knew that he broke the law and God's people broke the law. And he would sit on that mercy and plead for God to have mercy. And then after he would plead, he would come out. And based on the sacrifice of atonement, in the mercy of God, he would pronounce back to the people that God had favor on them. 
and that he would bless them and that he would be with them and that he loves them and that as long as they mess up, as long as they keep coming back to God in faith, he will be for them no matter what. That was the job of the high priest. But do you see what he did? He made sacrifice. He went to God, pleaded for mercy, and then came back from God to be with the people. And this is what we see happening with Jesus Christ, our great high priest. The truer and greater high priest who didn't have to make sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. He himself became our sacrifice, though, once and for all, to satisfy the wrath of God against human sin for eternity. That's what he was doing on the cross. But then he resurrected and went back up into heaven, the Holy of Holies. And what's he doing in heaven? He's sitting on the mercy seat pleading for us. Every time you sin, if you're in Christ, and God says, that deserves wrath, Jesus reaches out his nail-scarred hand and says, I paid for that, remember? So therefore, God has mercy on his people, and at the return of Christ, it is Jesus coming back as a high priest to be with his people and assure them that God's blessing and forgiveness and love is for them, and that will never leave. Isn't that cool? He is the great high priest. And he says here in verse uh, 17, so we will always be with the Lord and under it's the connotation, not just that you're there side by side like you're there with a guy you don't like, but you're going to be with him and with his blessing and with his peace. By the way, that's what heaven is all about, being with Jesus. I get excited over heaven that I'll see people that I love. I get excited that there's going to be no more pain and suffering and streets of gold. That'll be cool. But nothing should make you more excited than being with him. This is the hope of the Christian, that we will be with him. It is the center point of heaven. It is what the, the supreme emphasis of heaven is all about. You will behold your Lord face to face. The next uh, picture here is a groom. Now, a groom in Jewish time and context, there was four steps for getting married. Uh, the first step is the groom and the, the father of the groom would go and cut a deal with uh, the bride. And they would make a payment and a covenant. And that would lead to a betrothal, a uh, time of engagement. And then there would be at least one year waiting period. And, after that, and during that one year waiting period, the groom would go back to his father's house or his father's town. And he would prepare a place for his bride. Um, if they were wealthy, if, if they weren't wealthy, they would do it inside the father's house. If they were wealthy, he would build the house for his bride. And then, the, that's the second step, is this time of waiting and anticipation and the time of uh, preparation on the groom's part. And then, at a time in which the bride did not know, the groom would come to retrieve his bride. And it would be this exciting surprise and as that broom walked, not broom, as the groom, as that groom walked into the village or walked into the city, people would start gathering. And the bride's uh, little, you know, girlfriends and, 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 and companions would gather and they would meet the groom and the groom would escort her back to the abode, the place that he had, had prepared for her. And then there would be a celebration and a wedding and the feast would last for seven days. We need to do our weddings a little different around here. All right? 
I like that idea. Seven-day party. That sounds fun. Some of you are like, I can't stand my family. I can't be with them for seven days. That sounds crazy. But there's four steps. There's the step of covenant. There's the step of preparation and waiting. There's the step of a surprise arrival of the groom. And then there's the step of the feast. And this is what we see happening here. In fact, when you see that in verse 17, when it says that they will be caught, uh, it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. It's that caught up with them is that same language that's used about a bride and her companions meeting to escort the groom. It's, it's a wedding language if you look at it in the original context. And so this is the great idea that Jesus has been preparing a place for us. This is what he tells his disciples in John. Uh, in John. He says, hey, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm leaving, but guess what I'm doing? I'm preparing a place for you. And then I'm going to come back for you. And what it shows us and the hope that it should give us is that heaven is not just a place where Jesus is. It's a place where all believers will have intimacy with him. Somehow all the billions of believers will be super connected to Christ mysteriously in heaven as he returns for us. And that's that great day. Now the last uh, image here is the image of a victorious and gracious king. And, and we get this here in verse 16 when it says, He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So there's going to be this loud trumpet. And there's going to be a cry of command. And that's just packed with imagery from the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the trumpet was uh, something that the people of Israel would, would blow when they were trying to gather an assembly for worship. When they were standing outside of Mount Sinai, when Mount Sinai was on fire with the presence of God, the people blew a trumpet. trumpet. And then all who heard that trumpet would say, I'm about to go stand face to face with God. And they would gather together. Imagine the feeling of that. Now, last week, I ate way too many ribs on Saturday night. And so I woke up at 4.30 in the morning uh, just kind of with a bellyache last Sunday. And um, all of a sudden, I heard horns. And I, I said to myself, is this it? I threw off the covers and I just laid like this. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> is this it? Is this the day that I'm going to stand face to face with my God? I was so excited. But it was just the train. <laughs> and then I was so depressed the rest of the day. But it's going to be much louder than a train. Jesus says in Matthew 24, he says that it, the coming back of the Son of Man is going to be just like it is on a summer night when lightning goes from one side of the sky to the other. And it's completely obvious. And, and some Christians teach that there's going to be like a secret coming of the Lord. But I think from Matthew 24 in this text, it doesn't seem like there's anything secret about it. It's going to be loud. It's going to be clear. It's going to be a public announcement. Breaking news. The Lord has arrived. And then trumpets were also used in battle. And interestingly enough, if you look at some of the uh, Israel's battles, trumpets were blown to declare victory before the battle was even fought. So my favorite story of this is in the book of Joshua, when God's people are coming into the promised land. God said, I'm going to give you this promised land. There's a bunch of wickedness in this promised land. The Canaanites had been um, living in wickedness. God had given them hundreds of years to repent, but they didn't. 
The height of their wickedness is that they would build altars to other gods and they would sacrifice their children. And so God said, I'm going to cleanse this land. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. But there was one military garrison that stopped the way, the city of Jericho. And it had huge walls all around it. And God gave them a battle plan to go and fight Jericho. And the battle plan was really simple. He said, I want you to go and march around it each day. March around it um, one, one time a day for seven days. But on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. And on your last time around, I don't want you to pull out your swords. I want you to pull out your trumpets. And then blow your trumpets. And then I will grant you victory. And so that's what they did. They came in. They marched around, they blew their trumpets, God made the walls fall down, and God granted them victory, and Joshua brought them into the promised land. It was a declaration of victory for his people before it even happened. And so when Jesus returns, and the trumpet sounds, did you know that Jesus' Hebrew name is Joshua? He will be the truer and greater Joshua, bringing us in to the new promised land, the new heavens and new earth, and he is announcing victory before he arrives. And there's, a, there's, there's an aspect of this that's interesting because it's an aspect where it says it will be an exciting noise to those who are in him, but a noise of terror to those who continue to reject him. Because on that day, he is coming to cleanse the earth of evil and wickedness and rebellion. And so it should give us a, a sense of um, excitement, but also a sense of fear as we think about what that sound of trumpet will be like. And then the last thing that a trumpet says, and I'm going to end my sermon on this. Um, the trumpet is an announcement of jubilee. Every 50 years in the nation of Israel, there was a year called jubilee. And it was this year of grace. A year where if you had debts, they were cleared. A year if you were a slave, you were set free. Doesn't matter if you've been a slave for a long time, the entire 50-year period, or if you'd just been a slave for three years. It didn't matter. You were set free that day. It was a year um, where if you made some stupid decisions and got yourself into trouble, those were all forgiven, and all the financial obligations that went with that were forgiven. It was a year that if you lost property, your property was returned. It was a year of grace where things that, that in righteousness uh, that could have been held against you were just forgotten and as if they were not the year of Jubilee. And guess what started the year of Jubilee? Trumpets. And this is the hope that when he'll come back, we'll hear those gracious trumpets. Your debts will be acknowledged totally as forgiven and understood totally. All, you're, you will no longer be slave to the sins that are in your life. All the wrongs and all the things that you've done, Jesus has already paid for them, but on that day, that day, it will become a reality to all people and to your soul. It's the year of freedom. It's the year of grace. And so that's why I love this line that we sing in the song about Jesus' return. He says, he, he shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing his praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, our God. I urge you to hold on to this message today. 
and to think about the return. Amen. Now I'm supposed to get off, but I'm not going to. <laughs> I actually, since I'm passing the torch to Pastor Mark and the other elders, I would like to take just a brief moment, no longer than five minutes, to give you five exhortations for you as a church as I go to take another position at another church. Um, these are five things that I hope you hold dear, and they're inspired from the text. I probably have a list of like 20 exhortations, but because of the time and the text, I only have five, okay? The first exhortation that I have for you today is this. As I go and you guys embrace life with a new lead pastor and you follow the other elders, keep pursuing doctrine. Verse 13 says, I don't want you to be uninformed. And this is about the doctrine of um, the return of Christ, but I think it's about all the doctrines of Christ. And I just want to say to you, like, be, keep being a church that loves reading your Bible. When we were on sabbatical, um, we went to a handful of church, churches that, like, you didn't even need to bring your Bible to church because there was just a couple verses that were going to be put on the screen, or you're not sure if the, the message of the Bible is even going to be taught. And one of my favorite things about Living Stones is we love the Bible. So keep loving the Bible. Keep pursuing doctrine. Some of you are like um, really academically inclined. So you're like, right on, pastor, yes. Some of you aren't. But we all need it. And we all need to be teaching it to each other. And we all need to be reminding this to each other. Keep pursuing doctrine. Listen, um, there's a lot of counterfeit messages out there, all claiming to be truth. You know how the only way to battle counterfeit money, you know, counterfeits is to get really familiar with the truth. The only way to battle darkness is with light. So keep pursuing doctrine, Sparks Church. Um, maybe you've heard the story of uh, the deacon who says to his pastor, I'm really looking forward to your message today. Um, but don't learn me anything. Make me feel good. Don't be that kind of church. Be the church who loves to learn the Bible and learn about God, okay? Um, my next exhortation is this. Um, get busy, or no, excuse me, the next one is be real. Be real. Paul says in this passage I, uh, that you may grieve with hope over the loss of loved ones. He doesn't just say, just have hope and be a happy, clappy church. Um. You know, just positive vibes and everything will be better. He says, no, death hurts. There will be a time to grieve. Be real with each other in that. But also have hope in your grief. Point each other to the truth. That's been also another one of my favorite things that I've got to live out at this church is you guys have been real with me. And you've allowed me to be real with you. Keep doing that. Fight the temptation to put on a mask. Keep being real with one another, but keep having hope. The second one, or the third one is, um, get busy encouraging one another. Now, I know it's suburbanites. You're all like, get busy. I'm already busy. I'm, I'm not even thinking about what you're saying right now because I'm thinking about all the stuff I have to do today. That's the problem. In a suburban culture, um, especially a prosperous culture, there's a lot of things that we can be busy with that are good things, but not the most important things. We can get busy with traveling and vacationing and house projects and hobbies and kids' sports and, and all this stuff. And um, 
not saying those are bad, but they're not as important as encouraging one another. Paul says very clearly, 18, encourage one another with these words. And, and if you are too busy to be in each other's lives, too busy to show up to church, too busy to show up to group to encourage one another, I would say then you're too busy with unimportant things. You need to be serious about this thing that God calls us to, encouraging one another with, this is our most important thing. Because life is hard. And being a Christian in a secular environment where people hate Jesus is not easy. So we need to be encouraging one another. Uh, The fourth exhortation is this, have urgency in evangelism. When we started this church in 2011, in 2010 is actually when a handful of us started getting together and praying. And during 2010 to 2011, we had six groups, six community group Bible studies launch in that year, most of them with unbelievers. Because the only way to get a new church is like, well, we ought to get some people here. Let's just start, you know, getting our friends who don't know Jesus here. But once you get into a building, you can become relaxed in your evangelism. Once you get to this stage of church, you can be like, I kind of, I feel comfortable and I like how things are. And, and you can lose a little bit of motivation to tell the world about this hope. But I just want to say from this text, the trumpet will sound. And that's going to be a day of terror if people don't know Jesus. And how, as Paul says in Romans, how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? You are in their life to tell them. And, and then on top of that, um, there's people living without hope. There's people living every day fearing death and losing loved ones and they don't have hope. But God has given us in this room hope. So let's let that hope shine. Let's not hide the light under the basket, but let's share that hope with others. Have urgency for evangelism. Please keep doing this. And then my last encouragement is simply this. Remember that your life together and your work together here as a family is not in vain because Jesus is coming back. There's gonna be a lot of demonic lies that say, no, you crazy. Or man, you know, being in a church is hard because we're sinners. Being in a relationship with other sinners is very difficult. And And then also trying to share Jesus with the world who is resistant to him is very difficult. And so my encouragement to you is when you get filled with despair or grief or hope, keep remembering that your work is not in vain. And I want to read to you this from uh, 1 Corinthians. And I want you to stand for this reading as a blessing. This passage is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I even have a portion of it tattooed on my arm. And it's a passage that talks about the hope we have because Jesus is resurrected and will resurrect us. It says um, this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body body must be put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on the immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor here in Sparks, Nevada, is not in vain. I love you guys, and it's been an honor to serve with you.